from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Folklife Today podcast. I'm John Fenn, and I'm here with my colleague, Stephen Winnick. Hello. We're both folklorists at the American Folklife Center here at the Library of Congress. I'm the head of research and programs, and Steve is the center's writer and editor, as well as the creator of the Folklife Today blog. And today we're joined by several guests from the AFC to talk about an online collection of ours, the Chicago Ethnic Arts Project Collection. This was the first of the American Folklife Center's historic field projects, and the collection was digitized and then made available on the Library of Congress's website just about two years ago. And a lot has been going on with it since, so we've asked some of our colleagues to help us talk about it. Our first guest is our coordinator of processing, Anne Hoog. Hi, Anne. Hello. Anne. You know the collection quite well, since you were involved in getting it ready for public online access. Where do we start? Well, let me first say that I do know it fairly well, but it is such an immense resource that I am still learning new things about it. But a good place to start is with the type of collection that it is, meaning how it came to be. As you can tell by its name, the Chicago Ethnic Arts Project Collection represents materials from a cultural research and documentation project, or survey, that was undertaken in 1977. As Steve said, it was the first of AFC's field survey projects after the center was formed in 1976. It was led by 14 folklorists who were directed by AFC who fanned out across the city and a wide range of neighborhoods and suburban areas over the course of several months. They amassed more than 300 sound recordings, more than 14,000 photographs, 269 folders of manuscript materials and two video recordings, as well as publications, ephemera, administrative files, and of course, field notes and reports, totaling more than 20 linear feet. That's a lot of documentation. Um, what was the main purpose of the project? Well, this project, along with many other survey projects the AFC undertook for the next 20 years, are typically focused on documenting cultural communities and their traditions in a set geographic location. So this one focused on Chicago, and later ones focused on states like Rhode Island or regions like the Pinelands in New Jersey. It's a kind of spread out exploration of who's out there and what they are doing, culturally speaking. Field workers interview certain community members about their traditions, record performances and rehearsals, and of course take loads of photographs and sometimes videos. The traditions include spiritual, musical, and dance traditions, spoken word performances like stories, and craftsmaking and culinary traditions. The traditions are documented in places and spaces in which they develop and change in the places where they are shared within communities and to wider publics. So we've mentioned before that the 1977 Chicago Ethnic Arts Project was the first of a series of cultural surveys sponsored by the American Folklife Center that were undertaken well into the 1990s in a number of places in the U.S. So there's the South Central Georgia Folklife Project collection, also from 1977. There's the Rhode Island Folklife Project and the Montana Folklife Survey collections, both from 1979. And there's the Lowell Folklife Project collection from 1987 through 1988, among others. And a good number of these survey collections have also been digitized and made available at the library's website, loc.gov. Right. All of these collections have something in common, which is that they were formed as a result of cultural survey work. But they also have different reasons for being initiated, that is, an array of goals of particular stakeholders who set the project in motion. So what sparked the Chicago Project in 1977? That's an interesting and important story. The Chicago Ethnic Arts Survey was organized by the AFC, but it was co-sponsored with the Illinois Arts Council, 
which is now known as the Illinois Arts Council Agency. It's the funding body for supporting a wide range of arts organizations and activities across the state. In 1976, the Illinois Arts Council was interested in developing an ethnic arts program. That is, a program dedicated to folk and traditional arts with set funds that could be used to support the communities, groups, and individuals who practice and express them. So they had some discussions with folklorist Bess Lomax Hawes, who was then director of the folk arts program at the National Endowment for the Arts. And they all decided that a crucial first step would be an ethnographic survey to, and I quote from the project's final report, determine the resources and needs of the greater Chicago area ethnic community. In this way, the Chicago Ethnic Arts Project helped to create what has become the Illinois Arts Council Agency Ethnic and Folk Arts Program. It's a program that continues today through such funding opportunities as its Master Apprentice Program, which is a common funding scheme of state folk life programs across the country. Interesting. And this really speaks to the important uses of ethnographic survey projects. These can help surface the rich diversity of cultural communities and their cultural practices and expressions in a given area. And in this case, the audience was the state government structure of Illinois. Yeah, the Chicago Project was an opportunity to document the cultures of urban environments, which was a relatively new approach at the time, but also to show the benefits of grassroots ethnographic work, and in that way, demonstrate what professional folklorists can do. It really showed that these kinds of projects can help to increase the access cultural communities have to resources such as funding, and that's a basic need for supporting and sustaining cultural traditions. Figuring out what and whom to fund is a cornerstone of the nationwide infrastructure of state and regional folk life programs, and that infrastructure is still going strong in, in many respects today, but it was just being built in the 1970s. I got my start in that network as one of the state-supported folklorists in New Jersey, and all the directors of AFC were involved in that network of state and regional programs, and so is Michelle Stefano, who will be with us in this episode. So by demonstrating how successful such projects could be in establishing ongoing programs, the Chicago Project really fed the professional development of folk life as a field. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great point, Steve. Anne, what stands out to you about this collection, though? Well, that's a good question, John. Um, one of the main strengths of the Chicago collection is its broad ethnographic scope in terms of the neighborhoods, and of course, cultural communities and their cultural practices and traditions that are represented in it. I mean, the field workers really did spread themselves out, casting a wide net, so to speak. They really captured at least a few slices of Chicago's folk life at the time, including some of its many musical clubs, community heritage centers, religious spaces, storefronts and other locations where traditional culture was found throughout the city. And it's important to note that they didn't capture everything. No, the collection is by no means comprehensive, but as a whole, it provides significant insights into the multi-layered histories and cultures of Chicagoland in the late 1970s. It includes cultural, spiritual, and arts practices of roughly 25 cultural communities, Polish-American parades, Greek-American embroidery traditions, street murals, and musical performances of Puerto Rican and Mexican-American communities, to name only a few. Again, the collection's greatest strength is its wide-angle view into the region's cultural diversity at a time of great political, economic, and social change. Thanks, Anne. That really captures the collection in general, but I wonder if you'd share with us an item from the collection that sticks out for you. <laughs> That's a much more difficult question. I guess I'd have to say that Chicago's African-American communities are the most represented communities in the collection in terms of the numbers of photographs and interviews 
covering musical and other traditions, such as quilting, for instance. And I love the items related to the city's jazz traditions, the numerous photos of street scenes and murals in the city's jazz alley at 50th Street and Langley Avenue on the south side. The team documented great jazz clubs, such as the Checkerboard Lounge, where Muddy Waters played and whose son, Muddy Waters Jr., I might add, was photographed and is also in the collection. Of course, I have to say that I love all the field notes and the field, that the field workers wrote up. They provide such rich context for the photographs, recordings, and other materials in the collection. True, but we're going to hold you to this, Anne. Can you pick just <laughs> one thing? All right. Well, I do enjoy this interview with James Mack, uh, a jazz musician, composer, and educator who was originally from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and moved to Chicago as a young boy. He became Chicago's foremost arranger for R&B commercial hit records. In fact, as the folklorist Ralph Metcalf Jr. pointed out in his field report, quote, a listing of the artists with whom Mack worked reads like a who's who of soul music. Here he is talking with Metcalf Jr. about many topics related to his life as a Chicago artist and educator. But what I appreciate most is this excerpt, where he points out the importance of archival collections as resources for the city's musical traditions so that people can learn and know that history. Are there any comments or perspectives you'd like to add about this black music in Chicago, John? I think that the serious thing, uh, the most important thing that needs to be done first is really a, a definition of what that is. Some historical study, compilation of archives, interviews with figures who have taken, who have taken part in the development, even laymen who can give their reactions. I think before any, I think the crying need is for any kind of archival uh, uh, collections, studies, so that really those who can subsequently, after all, before we talk in terms of developing something, we have to know what it is, where it is, where it's been going, what history indicates that its, its development might, might be leading to. I think it's, there's a tremendous amount of ignorance. And even those of us who've been very, very busy in the industry frequently don't really know that much about, about the guy who's in another aspect of it across the street. So I think that the basic thing we need are archivals, that we need collections of written material, of records. Uh, we need a place where scholars can get to these because there's a great deal of interest and this interest grows. Remember what was, what, was, uh, what was 25 years ago, the music of the streets and the music of the corners, now high art, and WFMT regularly addresses itself to it, the kinds of things that, that I can only hear on my back porch as a kid. That was great, and it really speaks to the work we're trying to do with the Chicago Collection, as we'll hear in a little bit. So, Anne, we'll come back to you later to hear more about your work in preparing the collection for its digitization and online presentation, but let's bring in Carl Fleischauer to learn more about what's in the collection. Carl is now retired, but still here at the American Folklife Center as a volunteer. Welcome, Carl. Well, thanks. Howdy. Glad to be here. It's great to have you join us, Carl, especially since you were there in Chicago contributing to this project 42 years ago. Um, I'm sorry to count up the years there, but from looking through the collection items online, I see that you were really everywhere in 1977. You photographed many churches and houses of worship of Southern Pentecostal communities in Chicago, as well as those of Greek, Russian, and Ukrainian Americans. 
You were in the homes of Norwegian-American fiddlers and needlework masters. You were in the German-American Cultural Center documenting the Transylvanian Saxons dance group and at the Norwegian Cultural Center documenting the Danish singing group Harmonian. You were in restaurants, bakeries, and the popular music stores of the Polish and also Balkan communities. I mean, I can't even name it all. Well, you know, the project was really broad. It may not have been as deep as we would sometimes wish, but it really did have a series of short visits to a huge array of people and communities. And I would say that the project's successful organization is a real testimony to the director, my then Folklife Center colleague, Elena Berdunas, a Lithuanian-American and Chicagoan, with a real feel for ethnic community life, Jonas Dovidanus and I were the two participants who focused on media documentation, sound recording, and still photography in support of the professional folklorists who were central to the field visits. So what would be an example that sticks out for you? Well, one that makes a good, for instance, is uh, a session I had with John Katsikas, a Greek-American Santuri player. Here I was supporting the folklorist Peter Bardas. Peter was in Chicago in April of 1977, but couldn't manage to visit all of the people he learned about. So in June, I followed up on Peter's arrangements and went out to the Katsikas home in suburban Oak Park. The Centuri is a stringed instrument in the Hammer Dulcimer family, and Mr. Katsikas had played it since he was seven years old as part of an orchestral group in the Greektown neighborhood on the west side of Chicago, where he was born and raised. I set up the recording equipment in his living room, and if you look at the photographs, you can see that Mr. Katsikas donned a tuxedo for the performance. <laughs> He'd also written out a very long list that represented his repertory, and I photographed that during my visit as well. Yeah, so let's just pause to say that the Chicago Project was how Peter Bardas came to work at the American Folklife Center, and he worked here literally for the rest of his life, and we all miss him. In Peter's field notes, he writes that at the time, Mr. Katsikas knew 2,000 traditional Greek songs and had been playing for 45 years. So let's listen to an excerpt from your interview with him. Here's a segment from the very beginning of the recording when I was asking him about how he learned Greek traditional music and particularly playing the Santuri. Well, I learned it from my father when I was seven years old in 1931. And was this in Greece? No, in, right here in Chicago. All right. Matter of fact, my father is a, was a an accomplished musician. He's still alive, living in Greece now on his retirement pension. And I was the eldest born, so he decided to make me a Santuri player because he couldn't find a decent Santuri player in the city of Chicago. And he was he was determined to, to make me learn it correctly the way he think it should, thought it should be taught. Is there a lot of variety of styles and stuff? There's, a, there's a great variety because uh, Greek music has got about 50 different varieties. And in Chicago, we were obligated... Being Yanks, first of all, we were looked down upon as non-Greeks by many Greeks from Greece. So secondly, in the cabaret circuit where you can make a decent living, and not even a decent but just about scratch out a living, you had to be able to play every type of different area of music of, of the Greek people. In other words, the Peloponnesian Peninsula, for instance, has a certain style of its own other than the northern peninsula called Rumidi. Now, the islanders, on the other hand, have a different beat altogether, 
and the, the Turkish mainlanders have a different beat, while the people on the Adriatic near Italy have a different type of music. Now, in order for us to make a living, we lived and we worked in cabarets and in coffee houses at night. And in order to get a buck out of somebody who's listening to the music, we had to play what he wanted to hear. So we were obligated in the States here to learn more about Greek music than the average Greek knows in Greece himself. And most of the young ones coming today who come to this country are not as well versed on the variety of Greek music as I am. Of course, I'm through my father's auspices and playing with the orchestra for many years, since I've been playing since 1931, I've picked up every style of music, every kind. And here is John Katsikas again, playing a piece known as the Bacchanal song, which he first describes. Now, on the other hand, you've got a, a real relaxed type of music uh, that you, you get mostly in the old tavernas. It dates back to the time of Bacchus, God Bacchus, the god of wine. Right. And they even call it a bachanyotico. Right. And, that, that, and that's strictly for a guy sitting in a, who's had a lot of wine in him, and he just wants to chant, he wants to hear himself chant away. And, he, and we just play a style where all he does is sort of go on into a long chant on, one, on what he's singing. Again, that was John Katsikas playing a Bacchanal song, and I can relate since my name means wine person, and actually in grad school my nickname was Bacchus. Yeah, we're suddenly in the mood for wine here um, in the studio. But Carl, one thing I've been curious about is that the project it was facilitated by a team over a dozen field workers, but, but how did that work? How was it organized and run on the ground? Well, even actually a little more background, after the Illinois Arts Council and the Folklife Center agreed to proceed, project director Elena Berdunas poured over the 1970 Chicago census. Now, this is a bit tricky. It's as much an art as a science, but Elena wanted to come to the best possible sense of the city's ethnic and cultural groups. The resulting working list of groups was then matched up with folklorists whose experience expertise made them a good fit for this field work. For example, Jens Lund is an expert in Scandinavian American cultures, and we were lucky to engage him to discover and document the expressive culture of Chicago's Swedish, Norwegian, Danish, Finnish, and even Icelandic American communities. Let's take a moment to listen to Jens interviewing Mr. Paul Sveinbjorn Johnson, who served as the Consul of Iceland, about food traditions of the Icelandic-American community. He was interviewed along with his wife at their home in Evanston, just up from the city on Lake Michigan. What about uh, some of the home customs with regards to all oh, food, with regards to say, decorating the interiors of, uh, of one's house, sewing, uh, any of those kinds of things? Uh, to what extent have they uh, survived uh, in, in the Chicago area among 
say, Icelanders or Icelandic Americans? I would say to, to, uh, to a, um, a marked, to a noticeable degree. I see. What are some of the things that, uh, that are typically Icelandic, but that's, that can be found in Chicago? Today. Well, what do you mean in, in regards to? <coughs> well, let's take food, food for start. Well, I, think, <coughs> I think uh, Icelandic women here in Chicago cook, cook very much Icelandic food, along with American steak and barbecue mm -hmm. things. But I think we use a lot of boiled potatoes <laughs> mm -hmm. and try to have fish at least once a week. I see. And, uh, Is there a favorite so kind of fish? Is there a favorite kind of fish that's uh, particularly Icelandic? Uh, that the haddock, haddock and cod, that you can buy here frozen. What are they called in Icelandic? Uh, haddock is called isa, and the cod is thorskur. Uh, I see. Well, you know, Jens covered a lot of ground in his 14 days of field work in the city. Yeah, that's an impressive list of sites attached to his name throughout the project, um, but there's never enough time, is there? Well, as I said a moment ago, the survey was broad but not deep. Depending on their availability, the folklorists were contracted for something like one to three week periods, and what they accomplished within that constraint is nothing short of remarkable. But it's also worth noting that the folklorist Greta Swenson served as a field director in Chicago, working closely with Elena Berdunas, who, like me, went back and forth from Washington. In addition, the media specialist Jonas Dovidanus lived in Chicago, and he and Greta were a terrific source of continuity during that whole spring and summer of 1977. And it's also the case that several of the folklorists had their own networks of contacts that they could rely upon, so they were able to hit the ground running. Now, I've also seen some photographs that you took of post-field work workshops um, within the Italian-American or Irish-American communities, for example. What were those about? Well, in the fall of 1977, after the field work was done, the project went a step further in convening a series of meetings with representatives of eight of the 25 or so ethnic groups documented. These meetings served to assess, from their perspectives, how the field work went, and also to foster discussion on potential future activities centered on their cultures and traditions. These meetings were hosted by our partner, the Illinois Arts Council, and certainly aligned with the council's interest in learning if a dedicated ethnic and folk arts program ought to be established. In general, the participants were enthusiastic about the project, and it was our hope they would continue to document their own traditions. So, Carl, I know that since the collection was put online in 2016, you've been busy with updating some of the information about addresses where photos were taken and where recordings took place, and other details that generally fall into one of our favorite categories, which is metadata. Could you share with us what you've been up to in that regard? Yeah, I'll be happy to. This concerns what we call the about information for collection items. And here's a general truth about archiving. Enhanced information often emerges incrementally over time and in multiple places. This podcast is a kind of enhancement today, and it contributes to increased knowledge about the materials. But the example of the Santuri player we heard earlier, John Katsikas, gives us a dandy example of information enhancement yesterday. During the fall and winter of 1977, after the field work ended, 
The Folklife Center engaged the ethnomusicologist Nathan Pearson, the author of a book on Kansas City jazz, we all call him Bill, to give a careful listen to all of the Chicago Project music recordings. Bill typed up notes that the center scanned as part of the collection. So when you're on the web page for the Katsikas recordings and you look over at the links to related objects, one of those links takes you to Bill Pearson's detailed notes. Regarding my own enhancements of the about information in the online collection, and this is work I did in 2018, this entailed sorting out what had been typed or handwritten on paper in 1977, doing a bit of verification using today's search engines and online maps, and keyboarding my findings into those about texts that are presented to researchers on the web. And I'm pleased that my efforts have made that online offering more searchable and more navigable for end users. And I can see how that work is both super important and never-ending. Um, so I thank you for all the work you're doing on the field survey projects and for joining us, Carl, um, and helping us understand this a little bit more. Well, thanks for having me. Let's turn back to Anne now to hear about the behind the scenes of digitizing and presenting a collection online like this once the project is over and the items are processed and organized. Remember, just in terms of photographs alone, there are over 14,000. Yeah, so how does it all eventually get ready to be accessed online? Take us a little bit through that digitization and online presentation process, Anne. So the first step was identifying which materials would get digitized. We decided to focus on the materials created by the field workers themselves, the audio recordings, photographs, field notes, logs, and reports. The next phase was to retrieve the materials from the stacks, write instructions to the vendor for digitization specs, digital ID numbers, and rehousing. There were a lot of moving parts with three different vendors and hundreds of thousands of unique collection items going in and out the door for a couple of years. Getting the items digitized is only one piece of the puzzle, though. For online presentation, you also need to describe the materials. And for this, we hired a different vendor to take the original typed log sheets and enter that data into a spreadsheet. Then our catalogers took that spreadsheet and massaged the data to make it more digestible for researchers. It takes a ton of time and resources, but the end result is so incredibly satisfying, knowing that you're able to share this documentation with the rest of the world, and often with the individuals and families of those represented in the collection. So now that the collection is accessible from across the world, what more can we do? Well, breathing life into archival collections, especially those reflecting living cultural traditions, is certainly boosted through their digitization and online availability. When they can be looked at and listened to from anywhere in the world, opportunities exist for connections to be made and knowledge to be produced that perhaps would not if such collections were only cared for in Washington, D.C. With that said, though, we have been grappling with some questions concerning the limits of online accessibility. That is, what can we do to make these materials more discoverable and more connected to the communities from which the original documentation sprang. What does that city block look like now as compared to 1977? Are any of those restaurants and grocery stores still around? And what about all those social and arts organizations that were documented? How have they been preserved or transformed into something new? Those are all key questions that um, underline a, a guiding principle for us here at the American Folklife Center and all the work that we do, and that's trying to make these connections back to communities. 
Um, and I know that we've been looking at the online Chicago collections as a, a tool or, or rather a pilot project for exploring ways in which we can enhance engagement and help people actually use our online survey collections, especially within the source communities. After all, the Chicago project and the others that Steve mentioned earlier are not that old. So there's bound to be real direct connections between people living in Chicago today and the materials in the collection. On that note, let's bring our friend and colleague Michelle Stefano, another American Folklife Center folklorist who has been busy fostering such connections in Chicagoland. Welcome, Michelle. Wait a minute, not so fast, John. Before I go, I want to hear what one of your favorite collection items is. And I second that. Ah, fair enough. Well, in general, I really like the street murals photographed during the project, mainly from African-American and Mexican-American communities, such as in the Little Village neighborhood, which was predominantly Mexican-American at the time of the project. Some of these murals were artistic expressions of cultural identity and unity in raising awareness of broader economic, political, and social issues facing communities in the city at that time. But like I was saying, I get pretty excited about making connections between the collections and people, cultural organizations, and arts activities in Chicago today. So the collection has an interview with the Chicago-based Puerto Rican artist and muralist Gamaliel Bobby Ramirez, who sadly passed away recently. In the mid-1970s, he founded an organization called El Taller, or The Workshop in English, which was an artistic collective for young Latinx community members. El Taller provided folks with a creative outlet for expressing themselves through a range of arts practices like mural painting, poetry, and theater. Here's an excerpt from an interview Bobby Ramirez did with fieldworker Philip George, where he describes the reasons for founding El Taller. We have, we have a collective, and uh, we have a board, we have a collective, and we have our membership. Um, right now on the collective, there's five of us. Uh, Enrique Ruiz, Oscar Martinez, Alia Hernandez, me, and Ana Castillo. And, um, well, the whole thing started, uh, I'm answering your questions in order. <laughs> the whole thing started, uh, where we felt there was a need for, let's say, um, Latinos to get into arts and to the culture. And we felt that there was Latinos in the community and neighborhoods all over the city that were into the arts, into the cultures, into doing things, you know, um, create, create a lot of creativity going on, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like uh, there's no way to channel it. Uh, so, well, there was a group of us living in this neighborhood, and we thought we should start an organization that would develop that. Not, not only that, but from from workshops that we were holding in the streets and in baking apartments and all kinds of different places. We started realizing that, you know, the uh, the kids in the street, you know, were developing their fine talented kids and developing them. We started to realize that uh, a lot of them were like uh, gang members and stuff like that. So then we felt that in order we in order to like you know, push push the arts and that's in the community, we had to get more into like community, you know, like, in other words, we had to get, relate to us, our aspects of the community. And I worked with, uh, I worked with the Latin Eagles, and David worked with the Latin Kings, and we developed some workshops. This was about David Anders, <coughs> he's a poet, mm-hmm. and he has some poetry workshops and with, uh, with, uh, with the Kings, and I had some mural workshop with the Eagles. This was about three or four years ago, five years ago. 
And so, thanks to some of the work Michelle has been doing in Chicago, we have learned about what Bobby Ramirez did later in his life. I'll let Michelle continue with that. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, everyone. Yeah, so I've been fortunate to visit Chicago for over a year now. As John noted, I've been working to raise awareness of our online Chicago collection at the source community level and foster relationships with community-based organizations, as well as larger cultural institutions. And on one trip, I was able to meet with the director of the Segunda Ruiz Belviz Cultural Center, located in the city's Hermosa neighborhood. The center focuses mainly on safeguarding and promoting Puerto Rican arts and culture. And the director, Omar Torres, told me that Bobby Ramirez had been working with the center up until his death. Omar was so happy to find our interview with Ramirez, and of course, he shared just how accomplished and loved Ramirez was in Chicago and in Puerto Rico as an artist. And for me, it was important to see that these connections, however small, can be made with the collection and that there must be great potential to make many more. It was also eye-opening to realize that the rich resources in the collection are really not that well known. So let's back up a bit, Michelle. Tell us a bit about the American Folklife Center's overall aims in fostering these relationships in Chicago and what you've been up to. Sure. Well, we're guided by the idea that the collection is a rich resource for anyone now that it's accessible online. And more importantly, that it can be particularly important and meaningful for, again, source communities and their cultural organizations, as well as larger ones catering to wider publics in Chicago. So a good place to start is with the big meeting we convened in September 2018 at the Chicago Public Library. Yes, the Chicago Ethnic Arts Collection Gathering. Right. And thanks to the crucial help of Chicago-based folklorists Sue Eliterio and Lisa Rache, we were able to convene representatives from a dozen key stakeholder organizations, such as, the, of course, the Chicago Public Library, as well as the Illinois Arts Council Agency, Illinois Humanities, the Chicago Collections Consortium, the Black Metropolis Research Consortium, the longstanding Old Town School of Folk Music, and the Chicago Cultural Alliance, among others. That does sound like a big meeting. Yeah, it was. And while there were a range of goals, AFC wanted to do two things. First, we wanted to let these key representatives know about the collection, help them to engage with it, navigate through it to foster their own discoveries of materials and items that may be meaningful and useful to them and their organizational missions. Second, we wanted to learn about their needs in terms of cultural initiatives, projects, and public programming to see if our collection and the AFC in general can help to address them or spark new programming that we can work on together. After all, these photographs and audio recordings and all sorts of other materials are digitized and downloadable and free to use by communities and exhibitions, at events, online and social media, etc. We want to encourage more dynamic and meaningful engagement with online archival collections at the library and at the AFC, and what better place to start with than the Chicago collection? Yes, especially since Chicago is a remarkable city and there are so many cultural and arts organizations that are doing such important work, especially at that community level. Absolutely. I'm continually amazed by the number of community-run museums and cultural centers, older and newer, throughout the city, such as the Swedish American Museum in Andersonville, the National Hellenic Museum in Greektown, and the Haitian American Museum in Uptown, to name just three. And I know that one thing that you've learned is that a lot of these smaller cultural museums and centers are off the beaten tourist track, that is, in neighborhoods outside the core touristy area of Chicago's Loop. Yeah, so few visitors to Chicago, and dare I say maybe even some of the city's own residents, know about these many cultural organizations where cultural communities are telling their own stories in their own words, and often for decades. 
So one very important organization that we've been lucky to work with is, is the Chicago Cultural Alliance, which serves as a consortium of 40 Chicago area cultural heritage museums, centers, and historical societies. And I've been lucky to present about our collection at a couple of the Alliance gatherings so that I can meet face to face with the directors, managers, curators, and other specialists at a good number of these smaller cultural organizations, such as the chance I had to meet with Omar Torres of the Segundo Ruiz Belvis Cultural Center. And so you've been developing these relationships to see how the AFC and particularly the Chicago Collection can help them with their institutional and programming needs. Exactly. And this is something that is very much continuing at the moment. Since it's exploratory, it takes time. I know several organizations have already been featuring collection items on their social media, which is a key tool for them to publicly promote their organizations, of course. But I've also been meeting with the staff at the truly inspiring Chicago History Museum. The museum has rich resources in its own collections on Chicago's cultural history, as well as a tradition of partnering with smaller Chicago-based organizations on exhibitions and other programs. Many of the smaller organizations are within the Chicago Cultural Alliance. And of course, the Chicago Public Library is an important collaborator in this exploration. At the end of this year, I'll be presenting at one of their gatherings for librarians from their many branches. This is important for us as the Chicago Collection is all about that neighborhood level view into the city, which strongly resonates with the work that library branches throughout the city do at their local community level. And that's an important avenue for collaboration. At the American Folklife Center, we've also been working on ways to make the Chicago Collection more easily discoverable online, as Carl spoke about earlier. Another way is that we will soon be publishing a story map based on the collection. And this is really thanks to the hard work of our recent Bardis summer intern, Edward Wong. Yes, we should say that the Bardis summer internships were founded with help from our dear friend, the late Peter Bardis, who was one of the field workers in Chicago. And the first and second round of interns have worked on this podcast series, so we thank Peter in our hearts every day. So, John, explain Ed's work on the story map a little bit. Well, story maps are these map-based multimedia ways to tell a story online that really work well with the kinds of collections the library has. For example, the Chicago story map that we're working on tells the story of several of the community-based cultural organizations, museums, and centers that are represented in the collection such as the American Indian Center or the Swedish American Museum. As you scroll through the online story map, you'll be able to see on a literal map where these were all located in 1977 mm -hmm. at the time they were documented. And in some cases, these centers are still at the same address. Then as you continue to scroll, you get to learn about each of them through text and photos and even through listening to interview and other recording excerpts. It's a great way to bring together these digitized collections items into a larger story. And they help to provide entryways into the online collection, as there are innumerable stories that can be told about the collection, such as musical traditions in 1977 Chicago, or a more narrow story that focuses on festivals and parades as represented in the collection. So, Michelle, it sounds like you've gotten to know the collection pretty well. What's a favorite item of yours? Okay, I prepared myself for this question, and I'm going to cheat. I have to say that one of my favorite aspects of the collection is that so many of these community and neighborhood-based cultural heritage centers and museums were documented in 1977 and are therefore greatly reflected in the collection. Okay, that's a sneaky approach to the question. Yeah, aspect? Well, hold on, hear me out. <laughs> a good number of these centers and museums were founded around the time of the 1977 survey project or were established within a decade or so before it. So they were at the time relatively new, 
and significantly, many of their founders and other key staff members and community leaders were therefore interviewed by the AFC field workers, such as we heard with Bobby Ramirez and the El Tire Artistic Collective. In addition, we have an interview with Kurt Matiasen, founder and director of the Swedish American Museum. There's another interview with the director, Alfred Waters, of the American Indian Center, which is the first urban American Indian Center in the U.S., established in 1953, among many others. Well, pick one for us to hear a little bit of. Okay, how about we hear from the late artist and art historian, Dr. Margaret Burroughs, the founder of the DuSable Museum of African American History. The museum was founded by Burroughs with her husband in 1961. Since the early 1970s, it is located right next to the University of Chicago in the Hyde Park neighborhood on the city's south side. I'll let Dr. Burroughs tell us more about her museum. Here she is talking with Beverly Robinson about its beginnings. Well, then the way, now, how long has the museum been here? Not here, well, but how we, long we, been we opened in 1961. Mm -hmm. We incorporated in 1961. We are the oldest of all the black museums. Now, there are a lot of them that are coming up making a lot more noise. We are the, uh, the indigenous black museum. We, uh, we, we, the community started this. It, we, we're not back, we were not backed by Smithsonian, and I'm talking about Anacostia. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not an outpost. We're not an outpost. Uh, Studio Museum in Harlem, I call that a sort of an outpost. outpost right. You put something in the black community for yes, them. And, 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 the, and the expenses are paid by the city or by Smithsonian. We pay our, we raised our money ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, we are unique. As part of the influence of this little institution, we started in 1961 in my living room, as you read in the literature. And in 1961, and I saw your house yesterday. the libraries had very little, were not interested in anything about black history. And we had one library, the George Cleveland Hall Library, where a librarian who was very much interested in black history had through the years amassed together a special collection which would fit into a room about from here to there. And many of us who were younger people coming up uh, trying to discover something about our history and all. We would go to Hall Branch Library, and if you were very, very good, very, very nice, very polite, Miss Harsh would let you in that private room where all of those books were, and you could, she'd let you sit there and you could just read nice and easy, everybody, you know. And so this is what, this is this teenagers, this is what, you know, I, we strive to do. Gwendolyn Brooks went there. Mm -hmm. Uh, no doubt she read, you know, some of her first black poets were read right in there. And uh, I did, and I always felt, you know, really very, very good when, when Miss Harsh, who was a very dignified lady, a maiden lady. It really goes to show you that the collection comprises such a wide scope of topics relating to such important moments in the city's history, some more known than others, and how a folk life survey such as this captured so many of them, you know? Indeed. I'm really excited to see where this project is going, Michelle, and to see how the collection items can be made more meaningful and beneficial and resonant to people in Chicago and beyond. So thanks for joining us. Now, before we end, I have to ask Steve what his favorite item from the collection is. I thought you'd never ask. So one of the ways I got into being a folklorist was through traditional Irish music in my original hometown of New York. And in my 20s, I moved to Philadelphia for graduate school and my first job in folklore, really, was as a teaching assistant for Dr. Mick Maloney. 
And by that time, the Chicago project was over, but Mick had been the main Irish community field worker on the Chicago Ethnic Arts Project, so he was telling me all about the project back in 1990 or so. And at the same time, I was a journalist writing about Irish music for various publications, and I came to know people like Mick and like the great fiddler Liz Carroll, whom Mick recorded for the project. Now, Liz has since then been a recipient of the National Endowment for the Arts National Heritage Fellowship, as indeed was Mick a few years back. And Liz Carroll was also the performer at the very first homegrown concert of our 2005 season, which means it was the first one I worked on at the American Folklife Center. So Liz is very special to me, and she was a contender for my favorite recording in the collection. In the end, I put Liz's recordings and Mick Maloney's Bakken lecture up at the blog at blogs.loc.gov folklife. And I decided to select for this podcast a recording that's a little more unusual. This comes from yet another Irish-American National Heritage Fellowship recipient in the Chicago Ethnic Arts Project collection. Wow, this is suspenseful. Who could it be? Well, one of the major phenomena to arise from the Irish music and dance scene nationwide was river dance in 1994. The original lead dancer of river dance, Michael Flatley, then left to choreograph and perform in Lord of the Dance, Feet of Flames, and Celtic Tiger. Michael's parents were immigrants from Ireland, but he himself was born and raised on the south side of Chicago. And like a lot of Irish dancers, Michael's also a musician. And in 1977, he was at the top of his game as a flute player. Mick Maloney recorded Michael Flatley for the Chicago Ethnic Arts Project playing in an Irish music competition. So to put this in perspective, since these recordings were made, Michael Flatley's shows have played to more than 60 million people in 60 countries which is an astonishing level of success for a Southside ethnic artist grounded in folk arts. He's almost certainly the most successful artist in material terms that AFC documented in the Chicago Ethnic Arts Project collection. So let's hear some of his flute playing. Once again, that was Michael Flatley on the flute here on the Folklife Today podcast. Now, there are so many great recordings in the collection that John and I are going to pick another one. So, John, do you have another one? Yes, I do. I'm going to go with Miss Edith Wilson. She was a celebrated blues and jazz singer born in Kentucky but moved to Chicago when she was young. She performed in New York and elsewhere, too. Ms. Wilson was also an actress and portrayed Kingfish's mother in the popular Amos and Andy radio show. Thanks to field worker Beverly Robinson's interview with her, we learned that when she was 13 years old, she used to sneak out at night to sing. These were her first time singing in public, which got her into big trouble with her mother. Yeah, I remember that. It's a funny story. So here's an excerpt of Miss Wilson performing Woke Up This Morning with Blues All Around My Bed at the Jazz at Noon concert series held in the Marina Towers 
right on the Chicago River in the Loop on May 20th, 1977. Once again, that was Miss Edith Wilson, recorded in 1977. And that leaves us with room for one more, as they say in the old spooky legend. But first, thank yous are in order. To our guests, Anne Hoog, Carl Fleischauer, and especially Michelle Stefano, who drafted this episode. To all the field workers on the Chicago Ethnic Arts Project collection and all the people they documented, they are too numerous to mention by name. And we should also thank John Gold, our engineer, and Mike Turpin and Jay Kinlock of the Music Division for help with the studio, and colleagues throughout the library with helping us deploy this podcast once it's made. And of course, thank you, Steve, but also congratulations, because this is the last episode in our first season of the podcast. Well, thanks. And it has been quite a journey to figure out how to do this with you and John Gold and the whole team here at the Library of Congress. So it's been a lot of fun, and we're going to continue next season as well. Right now, I should say thanks to all our listeners, and to take us out, I say we head back down to the south side and visit Josephine's Lounge on the night of May 21st, 1977, where Magic Slim and the Teardrops are playing Laundromat Blues. Sounds perfect. Let's go.
This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.